You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome, all you weirdos, Krakoans, and blob slash juggernaut chimeras out there. It's time for another Weird Dose of X, your X-Men podcast as part of the Weird Science family of podcasts. I'm Jason, and with me today is, well, nobody. Ruben is off on a secret mission to the Savage Land, a.k.a. Chicago, and should be back next week. If he survives. If not, we'll just pop another Ruben out of a gold ball and off we go. So, I'll be flying solo today. I'm also taking a page out of Jim's book and recording much later than usual. This is not my usual manner of podcasting, making this an adventure for all of us. Including Jim, we'll have to edit together whatever mess of an audio file I end up sending to him. Sorry, Jim. How dare you? Theoretically, this should make for a shorter show. I don't know because I've just started recording, but listeners, you can all look at the running time listed on your podcatcher to see just how wrong that prediction turned out to be. But I've got my notes and I've got a nice steaming surface of herbal tea, so let's get started. I will, God willing, be talking about three books today. X-Men number 19, the beginning of a brood storyline. Wolverine number 30, the end, question mark, of a beast storyline. And finally, Nightcrawlers number one our Sins of Sinister entry for the week, and the end of the year 10 issues. But first, two brief news items. One about a book that's been canceled, and the other about a book that has not been canceled. First, the bad news, at least for fans of Steve Orlando. Issue number 11, Marauders, has just been released, and while issue number 12 has been solicited for March, no later issues of Marauders have so far been announced by Marvel. This is kind of weird. For instance, X-Men and X-Force are both solicited all the way through May. Some fans of the series have asked writer Steve Orlando about this on Twitter. He danced around and said that he, he can't really answer their questions other than to just point them back to the solicits. In reply to another Marauders question, Orlando said, quote, Sales were not where they needed to be, unquote. To me, that makes it sound pretty certain that this volume of Marauders will be ending in March. In better news, no matter what Amazon and Comixology may have told you, X-Men Red has not ended. It seems that the sins of sinister hiatus for that book has confused some computer algorithms, and many digital subscribers, including our own Ruben, I've gotten emails telling them that the series was canceled. Once again, going to Twitter for answers, I found Kieran Gillen assuring people that X-Men Red absolutely will continue after the Cinder Senator event concludes. You just have to go back to Comixology and do some resubscribing stuff if that's how you get your, your books. Now, listeners, you may be yelling in your phones asking why I look to Mr. Kieran Gillen's Twitter when X-Men Red is written by Mr. Al Ewing. There's a simple answer to that. Mr. Gillen hasn't blocked me. <laughs> Now, on to the books. First up, X-Men number 19, Lord of the Brood, part one. Written by Jerry Duggan, art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Federico Blee, letters by Clayton Cowles, designed by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. This story will eventually cross over with Captain Marvel, and three issues of that Captain Marvel Revenge of the Brood storyline take place before the events of this issue. So, I did read those. Let me get you quickly caught up on what's happened there. In Revenge of the Brood Part 1, Captain Marvel gets a scrambled, staticky distress call from Rogue, and then another from Binary. Now, this Binary is a recently created energy-based clone of Carol, not her old alter ego. Okay, so Carol puts together a team of some of her pals and some of Rogue's pals and heads out into space looking for her. They find Rogue's ship, which is, of course, infested by the Brood. They find Rogue herself, who has herself been infested and has been transformed into a hulking alien brood, one that still has Rogue's characteristic brown and white hair. In Revenge of the Brood Part 2, 
The team fights with and then kills Brood Rogue by dumping her into space and hitting her with a blast of spaceship exhaust. Gambit isn't pleased by her, his wife's death, but the rest figure, hey, no biggie. This is the Krakoan era, they can just resurrect her in Arbor Magna. Psylocke picks this moment to explain to Carol that, gee, with cute little friend Rue having consumed that king egg and taken control of the whole species, there really shouldn't be any more brood raids, at least not on friendly mutant-to-earth targets. Curious. With one distress... <clears throat> with one distress call serviced, the team then tracks Binary's convenient signal to the planet Seiya 2. When they get there, they fight a bunch of brood, and then end up trapped in a Black Mercy-type psychic simulation where they all think they're just hanging out at a super fun Shi'ar cocktail party. Finally, in Revenge of the Brood Part 3, the team escapes the psychic simulation, kills another boatload of brood baddies, and discovers that they themselves are all in the very early stages of having been implanted with brood babies. Uh-oh. We're told, and we don't know how they know this, but for some reason they know that the brood are not trying to kill them, they just want to harvest their various superpowers. Well except for Wolverine, Laura version. Her, they definitely want dead. As the team fights their way through yet more brood soldiers, readers are shown a brood empress casually awaiting them. And that's where we leave off. Bottom line, the brood are not playing nice anymore, and cuddly little King Brew is nowhere to be seen. Okay, now that we're all caught up, back to our X-Men number 19. Here, our usual team is reacting to the distress call slash last words that Corsair sent to his son Cyclops back at the end of the last issue. There's a lot of fighting in this issue, so to save time, I'll let you all mentally insert And then they kill about 12 more brood After every other sentence. You can do that yourself. Magic teleports our X-Men team directly to the, quote, Outer Rim World that was the source of Corsair's call, and they conveniently pop right up outside the good ship Starjammer. The team now divides into three groups. Group 1. Cyclops, Sink, and Old Lady Laura, now going by the name Talon, head off to look for Corsair. Group 2. Firestar and Iceman are air support, who will hang back and blast Brood to keep up the action quota. Group 3, Gene and Magic are tasked with finding Brew and slash or figuring out what the heck happened to him. Let's start with Group 1. Scott and company find Corsair pretty easily. It's a trap, naturally, and Scott has to keep fighting off Brood while Sink and Talon, that's Laura, remember, perform surgery on Corsair. Sink uses Gene's TP and TK powers to sedate Corsair and give him open-heart massage therapy, while Talon uses her eponymous talons to do the slicing. They manage to carve little baby brood out and chop it to pieces, and then head back out of the ship to rendezvous with the rest of their team. Now group two. Firestar and Iceman have a nice chat about how much fun it is to let loose with huge elemental power in a setting where they don't have to hold back. This is more characterization than we've gone for Angelica in a while, and, you know, it's kind of nice. She has a, a, a buddy to hang out with. Finally, group three. Gene has a mental group chat with the psychic still back on Krakoa that being Psylocke, Emma, and the Cuckoos. Those psychics scan the minds of folks on the island, without asking permission it seems, seems a little sketchy, for any recent sightings of Brew. The Cuckoos get a hit. Brew was seen two days ago in Port Prometheus on Araco. Kind of strange that no one told the Quiet Council that the king of the entire frickin' brood was hanging around on Mars, but okay. And that's where we leave our main X-Men. Magic and Jean can just teleport back home, but the others are currently hiding out in an ice dome, talking about how to get away from the continuing waves of brood soldiers, while still caring for a gravely injured Corsair. There is one more bit of story I kind of skipped. The actions above are the main body of the issue, but these bits are bookended by a pair of Forge and Monet scenes that may or may not wind up connected to the brood narrative. Forge has a boneheaded idea, and he says he wants Sage and Prodigy's advice on it. Forge says that he has a Krakoan gate linked to Nowhere, that's Nowhere with a K, the severed celestial head that tends to pop up now and then, usually in the pages of Guardians of the Galaxy. The last time Nowhere appeared on panel was in Guardians Volume 5, Number 6, 
written by Donny Cates, and which was published just before House of X number one. In that issue, Nowhere fell into a black hole. Wormhole, black hole, some kind of hole. So how can there be the other end of a Krakoan gate on a place that disappeared before Krakoa was a thing? Time travel. Can you travel through time? Forge says that after he heard what happened to Nowhere, he got Cable, that'd be Kid Cable at the time, to time slide the two of them onto Nowhere just before the black hole incident and just long enough to deploy the other end of the gate. Sage and Prodigy tell him that going through a gate into a black hole is a really dumb idea, but Forge doesn't care. I do what I want! I'm pretty sure he didn't really want anyone's advice at all. He just wanted someone to brag to about how clever he was. So with the bragging accomplished, Forge and Monet suit up and head through the gate. Why Monet? No idea. I guess Duggan just needed someone who hasn't been used in the books lately. Maybe it'll become clear in the next issue why Monet is the perfect character for this bit. Turns out to be an odd trip. Usually it seems like stepping through a gate, unless you're Kitty, is just like stepping through a door. You're in one place, you step through, boom, you're somewhere else. You're in the kitchen, you step through, hey, you're in the living room. But this trip has more to it. Forge and Monet feel like they're hurtling through time and space and have visions that don't even match what the other's seeing. A lady on a rock, Forge holding hands with an unknown woman, a dwarven blacksmith, weird stuff. They do then both end up on nowhere, and right there in front of the gate, they meet themselves. Well, prone, immobile versions of themselves wearing the very same spacesuits the versions we've been following are already wearing. Forge announces that the bodies aren't dead, it's just that, quote, our consciousnesses have been ejected. Now, I don't know what that means either. Then they look out a window, and I'm not sure what we're supposed to think. It, it sure looks cool. The floating celestial head is surrounded by some very cosmic-y black dots, and the implication seems to be that we've traveled to a whole different universe? I don't know, maybe the art is supposed to let seasoned Marvel readers know that we're in some particular place, but I don't get it. So, if you get it, let me know. So, what did I think of this issue? It was alright. The Forge and Monet bit could turn out to be neat, but so far it's just a could-be-neat kind of a tease. The Corsair rescue mission was fine. There's the X-Men doing X-Men things, which is something this book doesn't always have and could use more of. Still, there's not much of a real narrative spark there, just kind of by the numbers. I am curious what's going to happen with Sync. In, in this issue, we see him increasingly able to sync multiple powers concurrently, and to use powers via muscle memory even when the mutant he's syncing with is nowhere around. And we already saw that he's able to pull powers even from non-mutant sources. I worry that our man Everett may be getting dangerously OP. If he can use any power at any time, that starts to make him the kind of character who, who breaks stories. I think I prefer the way Kieran Gillen used him in the recent Immortal, where he could replicate Hope's powers with a five, but not perfectly, and that imperfection had real effects in the story. It's those limitations and imperfections that I think can help make for good storytelling. Finally, still no sign of Brew. What went wrong to turn the Brood back their old ways? Is Brew no longer in charge, or has he gone native and abandoned his old friends? I do hope that this mystery is resolved sooner than later. I don't want this teased and teased and teased. I want to know what's up with Brew. Now, Stefano Caselli's art looks terrific as usual. The characters look like themselves, which you can't always count on these days. Facial expressions and body language all help to tell the story, especially Sage's skepticism in that Forge scene. That was really nice. The weird portal sequence to nowhere looks appropriately cosmic, and the fight scenes look appropriately battly. No complaints here at all. Sum it all up, call the book a 7 out of 10. A perfectly adequate X-Men issue, but one that seems probably kind of forgettable and lacks a whole lot of narrative drive or sense of purpose. Kind of what we've been saying for X-Men for a while now, alas. Our second book is Wolverine number 30, The Beast Agenda, colon, Beast Must Die. Written by Ben Percy, art by Juan Jose Rip, colors by Frank Darmada, letters by Corey Pettit, 
designed by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. When we left off at the end of Wolverine number 29, Logan had just come back to his full senses, more or less. Meanwhile, Jeff Bannister's so far unnamed daughter made her way onto Krakoa using a Deadpool finger as a skeleton key. Gee, one wonders why Nimrod went to all that trouble to hack such an insecure system. We open on Logan bathing in the ocean and reflecting on what a no-good Nick that Beast Guy has become and how he probably shouldn't trust him no more. He and Sage chat and decide that, immediately contrary to the very name of the story I just read, they can't kill Beast. They have to bring him to the Quiet Council to be judged. I gotta ask, do the Quiet Counselors know yet about the war crime space prison? If that didn't turn them against Beast, I don't think anything will. But Sage brings naked, dripping Logan his classic brown and tan 1980s suit to change into, and he heads off, presumably to be the best at that thing that he does that isn't very nice. Meanwhile, the dude's daughter is being babysat and Moira's now vacant no place by Black Tom, which I'm sure seemed like a good idea at the time. We do learn that the kid has a name, and it's Maddie. Seems a bit anticlimactic. This is her eighth appearance, and only now are we actually getting her name. Is Maddie even, like, a reference to something? Is there a reason they held back? All I can think of is Madeline Pryor, the Goblin Queen, and I don't really see any connection between this kid and her. Nothing direct, nothing even metaphorical. Maybe it's foreshadowing something that hasn't happened yet? Or maybe it's just a name. We get a nice, brief, who's-on-first routine between Tom and Maddie regarding Tom and Krakoa's complicated relationship status. I'm not asking you who's on second! Who's on first? I don't know! Third base! <laughs> Tom makes a little Krakoan golem of himself, and all seems to be right with the world, until an odd little wasp, down there in the no-place, stings Maddie, causing her to immediately roll her eyes back, foam with the mouth, and keel the heck over. Uh-oh. We cut directly to the healing gardens where little Maddie is being treated by Dr. Reyes. She's stable but still unconscious and kind of in a bad way. The Black Tom Golem caught the wasp and while no one could say for certain who made it, Logan blames Beast, who is conspicuously missing from the island. Sage and Logan head out to find Jeff, the dad. Logan suspects, out of pretty much nowhere, that his erstwhile buddy Jeff Bannister might be working with Beast, playing both sides. He thinks that Jeff might have even led them to that auction where he got killed under instructions from the Beast. I think we can say that at least that part's not true, since we saw get we saw Jeff get tricked by that lady in the park who looked like his late wife. This is quite the jump to conclusions on Logan's part, but it lets this stretched out story progress, so I won't complain too much about it. They follow his trail to various places and eventually learn, via Logan threatening to snick to the groin of another CIA agent, that Jeff has been transferred to CIA headquarters in Langley. Sage and Logan grab Jeff, who quickly confesses that Logan's suspicions were essentially correct. Jeff is now working for the CIA X-Desk. <coughs> Jeff is now working for the CIA X-Desk and for X-Force, or for the Beast who runs X-Force anyway. He says that he did it because Beast threatened to kill his daughter. So he's he's still on the good guy's side. He has an excuse for being, you know, not so good. At that moment, multiple rifle shots strike Jeff in the chest. Sage stays to help Bannister, and Logan runs after the shooter, who is, naturally, our bouncy blue buddy become baddie, Beast. Logan easily catches Beast, who has nothing to say in his own defense. And as the book ends, Logan returns the favor from the end of Wolverine number 26 by murdering Beast to death. Hey, I, I thought he told Sage that he wasn't going to do that. And that's our story. Except we get a post credit scene. Or a post-advertisement for upcoming issues scene, which is the comic equivalent. This scene takes place back on Krakoa, and a part of X-Force HQ, quote, known only to Beast, unquote. It's a room that looks like a much more organic-y version of a Mr. Sinister lab, with what I presume to be a cloned body of beasts floating in what looks like a back-to-tank right out of Empire Strikes Back. And organic computer readout reads... <clears throat> try that again. An organic computer readout reads out, auto-backup activated, 
and this version of Beast climbs on out, with only a bit of strategically placed mist to protect his, protect his beastly modesty. He has a particularly mean look on his face as he says, I knew this time would come. Now it is here, and everything is about to change. All right, question and speculation time. Number one, does Jeff Bannister survive? I wouldn't expect uh, Ben Percy to kill off a character he seemed to enjoy writing, but maybe Jeff had ser has served his purpose. Making Maddie an orphan and Logan into her surrogate father does seem like the kind of trope Percy might like. And so when was Jeff subverted by the Beast? Well, we know that Jeff really did think he was onto something with that message he found on the back of the Antiques magazine that lady left for him in issue number 26. He didn't know until after they were captured in issue 27 that the, quote, lady was really the merchant using an image projector. I suppose it's possible, maybe even plausible, that Beast was in cahoots with the merchant and setting Jeff up. Certainly seems like something a current year Beast would do. But there's no reason to suspect that Jeff knew about that in any way until after the auction, where, as seen in issue 27, Beast then starts to threaten Jeff after killing Logan. Number two, why did Logan agree to not kill Beast, and then he just went ahead and killed Beast anyway? I suppose what Beast did to Maddie was the final, final, final straw. Trying to murder a cute kid is even higher on the villainy scale than the fascist space prison or the taking over an entire South American nation. And the Quiet Council can always hatch out a new Beast to stand trial, right? Or maybe they'll roll Beast back a few versions, try to make one that hasn't gone bad yet. Maybe there'll be two Beasts running around in Krakoa, an official one hatched by the Five, and the unofficial one we just saw pop out of the Bacta tank. What is the status of Bacta Beast anyway? Did Beast have a backup clone of himself made by the Five, which would be against policy, but hey, X-Force protocols take precedence? Or was this clone made some different way? How is Beast backing up his memories into this clone, assuming he's doing so at all? And how recently was the last backup? So what does this Beast even know? As a plot line, this whole two Beast thing would be somewhat duplicative, ironically, of what's just happened with the other Wolverine, Laura, who now comes in both younger and older versions. Maybe they're not talking to each other. Who knows? Number three. How exactly did Maddie, the little kid, get to Krakoa? We saw in the course of this book that Jeff was no longer living at the home where Logan installed that portal, and would have presumed that Jeff took Maddie with him to the new house. And when we saw that original home of the issue, the portal looked like it had been destroyed anyway. Did Maddie somehow find her way to an entirely different Krakoan portal? We, we know there's got to be lots of them all over the world, right? Who was watching her? Why didn't Jeff notice she was gone? The timescale here isn't exactly clear, so maybe she wasn't actually gone for very long. And we don't know what arrangements Jeff had made for his daughter while he worked at this new job and was put over a barrel by Beast. So maybe she just ran away from, from daycare or school or something. Final question number four, when Back to Beast says everything is about to change, what the heck does he mean by that? Everything what? Everything's changing all the time. I don't know why this would be bigger than any other thing. But I guess I am curious. Okay, let's talk art. Juan Jose Reap's art here looks mostly fantastic. And there is something about the way he draws human faces, Maddie on page four and five and the No Place, for instance, that sometimes feels kind of unnatural to me. But that might be a me problem. His drawings of the little black Tom Golem are terrific, and the, the man sure knows how to draw a good explosion. Gotta hand that to him. So, we're done with the Beast agenda. Kind of. I mean, Beast still hasn't been put on trial, hasn't been, you know, made to pay for his, uh, his, his crimes and we don't know if he's going to. The next issue is titled, quote, Weapons of X. That's weapons, plural. And the preview image for the next cover seems to show Logan fighting at least one, two, four, six copies of Hank McCoy. Oy. But maybe that's just metaphorical, he said, hopefully. Overall, this was a better than average issue of this run of Wolverine. We got some answers. Minor tentative answers with even bigger questions still lurking, but hey, Beggars can't be choosers, and some answers are better than none. 7.5 out of 10.
Our last book today, Nightcrawlers Number 1, Sins of Sinister Year 10, Part 3, Voices of Fire. Written by Cy Spurrier, art by Paco Medina, colors by J. David Ramos, letters by Clayton Cowles, designed by Tom Muller with J. Bowen. We've really been enjoying this event. Yes, even though we expect 99% of it will all be rolled back when it's done. This is the first Cy Spurrier issue of the event, and well, let's talk about it. Scene 1 takes place in Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum. Vox Ignis, which remember is that Firestorm-like combination of Banshee and a Spirit of Variance, are still working for Mother Righteous. They don't seem to have questioned her authority or, you know, righteousness, even once all these past 10-plus years. We learn that all of Earth's magical types have absconded to Otherworld, so they're gone, and Mother Righteous has been having Vox Ignis run around to collect any magical doodads they might have left behind. Vox is interrupted by the titular Nightcrawlers bamfing in. These, we are told, are Mr. Sinister's elite troops known as the Legion of the Night. We saw one of them, the Spidey version, hanging out in a previous issue. All of these are Chimera, and all feature Nightcrawler DNA, plus Sinister DNA, plus some third party's DNA. Those third parties include Toad, Sabretooth, Wolverine, once again Laura version, Spider-Man, Domino, Pyro, and Emplate. A few of these have cute nicknames, like Anti-Fortune for the Domino Chimera. These don't really seem to matter. Vox, in conversation with himself, says that the Scream-O-Change has never worked on these kinds of beasties before, but hey, he's got nothing else to try, so let her rip. The Scream does manage to free three of the Chimera from Sinister's influence. That'd be the Wolverine, Domino, and Spidey ones, but has no effect on the others. The implication seems to be that hero-based Chimera can be freed, but not villain-based ones? I guess? Why? No idea. The good Chimera now murder the bad ones, and we have our team for this issue. Next, we get a data page, a page from Sinister's diary in which he explains things to himself that he already knows. The primary purpose of this is to let us readers know that, for reasons unknown to Sinister but soon to be known to us, the Nightcrawler DNA that had previously been unusual for Chimera is now working perfectly well. By the way, how many different ways have I pronounced Chimera, Chimera, Chimera in this episode? Answers on a postcard, write them in. This explains how these Chimera can exist. The secondary purpose of this page is to let us know that Mr. Sinister can't remember if he ever got around to killing the original Nightcrawler, the one with the Major League Horn problem. Seems like the kind of thing you'd remember, don't you think? Presumably, this means that Nightcrawler is still alive, otherwise, why bring it up? And we will be seeing him again, I guess, perhaps quite soon. Scene 2. Now we head off to the moon, specifically the area that used to be called the Summer House, but is now called the House of the Fall. I don't know if that means winter and spring are coming next, but now it's fall. In this place, two Nathaniel Essexes, that is, Orbis Stellaris and Dr. Stasis, are having a meeting when they're interrupted by a third Nathaniel Essex, Mother Righteous. She takes off her mask to reveal herself as an Essex, which surprises them. Well, it certainly surprises Dr. Stasis. We'll learn later that Orbis Stellaris and Mother Righteous are already well acquainted. Mother Righteous also reveals to them that she is responsible for undoing the spell cast by Margali Zardos, the one that messed with Nightcrawler and Angel and a handful of other mutants. Undoing the spell seems to have required the ritual sacrifice of Margali Zardos. Black Knight Dane Whitman is also seen looking not so hot in this flashback panel, as are two other characters I don't recognize, but he might still be alright. It is the undoing of this spell that has allowed Mr. Sinister to use the Nightcrawler DNA in his chimera and to create his Legion of the Night. With all that exposition exposited, Mother Righteous orders Vox Ignis to attack Dr. Stasis. A fracas ensues, and Vox Ignis calls in his three friendly Nightcrawlers as backup. It ends up being the Wolverine version who finishes off Dr. Stasis by snicking an adamantium claw out of her tail and into his forehead, which is an idea both ridiculous and kind of cool, 
And it's unfortunate that this is about the one panel on the whole issue that doesn't really sell the action. Guess Paco Medina couldn't figure out a reasonable way to have a claw shoot out of a skinny little nightcrawler tail either. Ah well. But it does seem that Dr. Stasis is, in this timeline, well and truly dead. I did not see that coming. Why did Righteous kill Stasis? Well, she was in cahoots with Stellaris, or at least hired by him, and her price is some answers. So Stellaris explains to her, and to us, all about how he stole Sinister's lab because he doesn't want Sinister being able to roll back this timeline. Stellaris has the processing power of the entire world farm, making sure that Dominion is achieved in this playthrough, and that he, Stellaris, is the one who achieves it. He doesn't mention anything about being in cahoots on this with Destiny and Mystique as well, but we know about them because we've read that other book. It's not explicitly stated why Stellaris wanted Stasis dead. Best guess is that he saw Stasis as a threat to his own dominionhood, and I guess he doesn't see Mother Righteous as such a threat. He teleports back to the world farm with a word of thanks to Mother Righteous, and also a word of warning. Stay out of his way, and he'll leave her the heck alone. Scene 3. Mother Righteous sends Vox and the Crawlers out to find her some more stuff. Scene 3. Next, Mother Righteous sends Vox and the Crawlers out to find her some more stuff and some more recruits. They add Nightcrawler Chimera versions of Colossus and Pixie to their ranks. They then go to Sinister's prime cloning facility, which seems to be in the basement of the old Xavier School. There they find Dr. Nemesis, still with an overgrown fungus brain and still drinking coffee, and they also find the original Nightcrawler, who still looks like a dinosaur. Yep, we thought he'd still be alive, and here he is just a few pages later. Margali's spell has been broken, but that has not turned its victims back to normal. It only means that they now could be resurrected back in their normal forms. But a sinisterized Quiet Counselor are now in control of that process, so sucks to be them. But at least this is back on the table for, I don't know, maybe the year 100 issue. Scene 4. The Nightcrawlers bring their new friends and the artifacts they found back to Mother Righteous's base, which is in a place called Avengers Crater, formerly Avengers Mountain. There's an untold tale for you. They have gathered a copy of the Book of the Spark, a Limbo Rifle, whatever that is, and a power-boosting cloned brain of Cortez. In return, Mother Righteous shows them their target. It's the Unis Gene Protected Lab of Mr. Sinister, the one that's hanging out with Orbis Stellaris in the World Farm. And she shows them their enemies, Mr. Sinister, Orbis Stellaris, and Storm. Hmm. She tells them that what they need to do is to help her build the, quote, Reliquary Perilous, an artifact that looks kind of uncomfortably like the Christian symbol of the Sacred Heart. Righteous says that this device will allow them to free everyone from Sinister's influence and that all they need to do is get someone inside that impenetrable black sphere. Is she telling the truth about this, about the reliquary, or about how to make it? It's unclear to me. Despite her name, Mother Righteous does not seem to be above lying to her servants to get what she wants. Bitches can't be trusted! And what is it that she wants? Also unclear. She is a version of Nathaniel Essex, though, so we can probably assume it's something selfish and creepy. Bitches can't be trusted! Now the Spidey Kimura volunteers to make the first try at the orb. He is a true believer in Righteous's cause, and he also feels that Sinister is trying to reassert that influence in his brain. He's been saved by that scream, but maybe only temporarily. So, he gets the go-ahead. He holds on to the Book of the Spark, uses the Cortez brain to boost his power, and gets a luck boost from his domino friend for targeting. He bamfs, and then he splotches himself dead against the, yes, still impenetrable sphere, which Fox Ignis already predicted, but Mother Righteous told him to hush. Not quite sure why they let Spidey try this. Oh well. 
Uh, Righteous praises the Spidey Chimera, yes, the one called Wall Crawler, for a sacrifice and tells her remaining servants that they need to get back to work. She again seems very manipulative here, telling them whatever she thinks they need to hear in order to keep doing what she tells them to do. And what she tells them to do now is to go back to collecting items of power, this time specific ones, ones she shows them images of. And going left to right, these images are, number one, the Darkhold, a magical book that has caused a whole lot of trouble in the 616, and that last we knew was fused with a Scarlet Witch. But that Scarlet Witch was disintegrated a couple issues ago at the start of this event, so who knows where it is now. Item number two, a red ball. I don't know what this is, but it sure looks shiny. Number three, a golden egg. It doesn't look like a mutant gold ball egg. Maybe it's a phoenix egg? Number four, a sword. Maybe it's Excalibur, or maybe it's a sword called Dragonfang, which looks like a better visual match. Now, Dragonfang is a magical sword carved from the tusk of a dragon, and which has been associated with Doctor Strange and with the character Valkyrie. Now, if you read that Valkyrie series, this is the sword sword that Bullseye picked up in that Jane Foster Valkyrie book, the one that he used to kill Heimdall. Jane destroyed the sword in that story, but hey, this is the Marvel Universe, and neither swords nor people tend to stay destroyed for all that long. Item number five, the Siege Perilous. Now, this is a magical amulet which has played a part in, you know, a number of X-Men stories, including the recent Knights of X by Teeny Howard that I didn't read. Number six, Thor's Hammer. We can tell it's Thor's Hammer because it still has that, I like to call the Kintsugi cracked effect that happened a little while ago in the Donny Cates Thor run. So, you know, that's a, a big Marvel item. Speaking of which, number seven, the Eye of Agamotto, one of Doctor Strange's main magical doodads. Number eight, an octahedral shape possibly a gem? Maybe an infinity gem? Really hard to tell here. I guess the earlier red ball and the golden egg could also be infinity gems. Maybe we'll find out. And finally, item number nine, a horned helmet with swirling tentacles. This seems to be the crown of tentacles, which comes from the 2010 Secret Avengers title by Ed Brubaker. And that's where the book ends. I suspect the impact of the ending would have been greater if I recognized more of those last items and didn't have to do a whole bunch of Googling just to find the little bits I did find. So listeners, if you have additions or corrections for my uh, ID list, please head on over to weirdsciencemarvelcomics.com, email us, and, and help me figure out what's going on here. So for me, this was a, a bit of a down issue in the Sims of Sinister line, but not without its charms. It didn't have the big events of the big preceding books. I mean, I guess the death of Dr. Stasis counts as a big event. I didn't expect that. But it did succeed at making me even more suspicious of Mother Righteous, and even more sympathetic for the poor Chimera who went from being trapped by Sinister to being manipulated by Mother Righteous. Paco Manita's art continues to be truly wonderful in these year 10 books. Again, that, that one panel aside. These new characters all over, the action, the emotion, all depicted just just wonderfully. Great stuff. One of the one of the best artists going at Marvel these days. It really does give these books a feeling of cohesion to have the same artist on all these year 10 books. And uh, I hope that Andrea DeVito was able to do the same thing for the year 100 books. Going through this book with all of you, I, I think I like it a little more than I did in my initial read-through. Spurrier's writing is not as much my thing as Gillen's or Ewing's style, but the story here is engaging and has a, a lot uh, worth thinking and talking about. So I'm going to I'm going to give this an 8.3 out of 10. And those are our books for this week. Hey, it did not take me quite as long as I feared it might. Hope you all enjoyed it, even though you didn't have Ruben here to help keep me honest and uh, point out things I messed up. Now, next week, uh, we should both be back to our usual habits. And uh, next week, here are the books that are coming out. 
Well, there is a Betsy Braddock Captain Britain number one book. We won't be covering this series on the pod, but for you Betsy Braddock Teeny Howard fans, well, here's the next chapter of that story. If all of you send Jim enough tweets and emails begging for it, maybe he'll cover Betsy on the regular Marvel podcast. Editor's note 354, that is never going to happen. But Ruben and I will be discussing these next two issues. We have Sabretooth and the Exiles number four which is the penultimate issue of that miniseries, and Immoral X-Men number one, the final Sins of Sinister series to debut and the final chapter to take place in the plus 10 year time period. Ruben will will be glad to be back for that one, I'm sure, as we're both big fans of Kieran Gillen and his take on the X-Men. I'm thinking and hoping that we get some more Mr. Sinister in that. Hey, me. So what do we say at the end of every weird dose of X? Me, I'm glad you asked. We say... Go read some X-Men comics. It's under my skin It's sinking in Doesn't seem real But I always heal I lose my mind be unkind What I do best isn't very nice Everything's going blank I remember it all I'm pretty hairy Not very tall I didn't want this Not by my hand The future is dark Just a wasteland I really like Kitty Pryde 